0: reading from first john chapter 1 That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life The life appeared we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the father and has appeared to us We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives.
1: Thanks. Thanks so much, Liz.
0: You may be seated.
1: Um, Sue Kimber read, read the Word um, of God to us this morning, and she had us all stand just like we did then. I was reminded it, in, in American churches that's a very, very common thing, and it's as, as kind of um, kind of cool to actually take the posture, isn't it, of, of standing in respect of something and standing in respect of God's Word of saying, you know what, this, this is no ordinary book. This is no ordinary ordinary reading this is god's god's word to us and so i hope that posture kind of just helped put you put you in that place number of years ago um many many years ago uh, i was around 24 i guess and i pretty much had figured i would thought of every possible question there was and the answer to it i kind of nutted out most of the things that bothered me in life and then i went to bible college and I discovered that there were a whole lot more questions that um, I hadn't yet thought of. And I must confess, I was in quite a degree of turmoil. On one occasion, I um, made my way to to the admin admin block there at Bible College, and I was hoping to hoping to find. Um, a, uh, one of my favourite lecturers, Professor Ian Hawley. I was hoping to find that he was available and so forth. And I, I went to his office, and his door was open, which I thought, good or bad thing. It means either a, if he's if he's there, good thing, he's he's available, and, and you know he hasn't shut the door because so, he's studying, I, or there's somebody with him, and I might be able to grab him. Bad thing if it's because he's left the office, he's down at the library or somewhere else. So I, I peered around the corner and. And I saw his massive desk filled with papers and books and so forth, and, and, and the light on the desk as well, um, bringing some light into the room because he had floor-to-ceiling bookcases which seemed to absorb every, every ounce of uh, natural light. And there behind the desk he was, his, his head low, glasses lowered, and, and I knocked on the door, and, and he looked up, and, and he said, Stuart, come on in. And I thought, th- oh, good, he's available. Thank you, Lord. I, I just am feeling so much in a turmoil at the moment. I, I really need to speak to someone. I'd love to speak to him. And he said, sit down, please. And I, and I sat down at his desk and, and immediately he just pushed aside everything that he had. And he, and he leaned forward and he was used by God in that moment to, to help turn the chaos that I was feeling inside into, into this calm and serene picture of, of the peace that only God can bring. 1 John is written to a church in turmoil. The earliest dates, probably, that some people think it's written, is around 65 AD, which would put it before the fall of Jerusalem. I think most people, though, agree it's a later date, maybe 80, 90 AD. We're talking about an apostle who's probably some 80 years old now. He's the last remaining apostle. Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, Do you remember? Uh, Jesus had warned the apostles about those times, and he said, before this happens, you need to get out of here. Don't turn back. Run. And they did. And John, um, we know, um, pretty much headed to Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And from there he ministered for many many years he did a stint on the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation but but pretty much spent most of his time there in Ephesus a church that Paul had planted and Timothy had had pastored later on so the aging Apostle John was there by the by 80, 90 AD Nero has been and gone that's his his demise done and dusted the persecution that he brought to Rome um, it was possible that John was actually in Rome at that time as well again escaped and and then planted himself back at Ephesus and then a lot of a lot of scholars think that by this time of course Rome is is without Nero they're fighting for who is going to be in control and the whole world seems to be in this turmoil a, a world of uncertainty particularly for the church they're in Ephesus there was a whole lot of new ideas that were running rampant. They they loved that was where they were they, they you know, they had the temple to Diana and and there was idol making and so forth. Every every possible new idea that there possibly was had landed in Ephesus. And with the apostles now pretty much, pretty much martyred, Paul's gone, Peter's gone, pretty much now all of them are, have been graduated to glory and, and John is one of the last remaining apostles. And these new ideas are creeping into the church and it's kind of saying, you know, that past teaching that you once heard, don't pay any attention to that. This is, we are now enlightened and this was the new move that was coming too. We, we look back on those things that were said and done and, in those days and, and now we're able to understand those things a whole lot better. Listen to us and listen to our new teaching. So this was what was coming into the church. And the aging apostle John by this time, couldn't even walk by himself. Jerome notes that sometimes he was carried into the, into the church. And if you were you know, amongst all of the churches there, and, and he probably did a circuit of the churches that we are listed in Revelation. That was probably his circuit. But now based in Ephesus, he would be helped into the congregation when they met. And he would come and sit in their midst and imagine the chaos, imagine the turmoil, the persecution, the uncertain times, these interesting new teachings, and who should we listen to? And John is brought in, and you can imagine perhaps even a bit of a hush as he is brought into the church, and you are going to hang on every single word that he says. And Jerome reports that he could no longer preach. He was that old and and lacked the the energy and the ability to, to preach an entire sermon So often on these occasions, when he was brought in, he was a man of few words, and this is what he would always say. Little children love one another. And Jerome said that was about all that he said. Whenever he was brought into the gathering, little children love one another. Little children love one another. Next meeting, John is brought in. Little children love one another. And on one occasion, somebody somebody asked him, is that all that you ever say? And Jerome reports that his reply to that was, it's the greatest commandment. And if this is the only thing that you do, it will have fulfilled that commandment. The aging apostle Seemed to be a man of few words, but this whole letter captures it, and that one statement, little children love one another, is a great little summary for the entire letter, 1 John. It's probably from Ephesus that he wrote the Gospel of John. Interestingly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written many, many years before. The Gospel of John is different to all of them, and you probably noticed that just in your, you know, as you read it. It sounds different, doesn't it? And that is very much john's style he's more the mystic and john has written the gospel in first second and third john if you like read as little sermons that relate back to the gospel we're going to see that in just a moment all of the three letters are like little homilies or sermons that actually explain the heart of his gospel then, of course, Revelation, written on Patmos, is, is also just an encouragement encouragement to the churches, in particular the circuit churches that, that he would go to. And so thanks for reading, reading this, Liz. And we're just going to tackle the first four verses, what is called the prologue or the introduction, the reason for my writing. And that's what John tells us in these first four verses. His structure is actually very, very different. Um, with with Paul and some of the other epistles, you can kind of break down the structure and yep, that plus that plus that plus that equals that. Or, you know, that's if it's deductive, inductive, you can inverse it. You've got chiasms and different structures in there that you can explore. John, you know what? It's very difficult. John is, he's all over the shop in one sense, and yet it makes perfect sense in another. But here's some, here's some help. He, he's basically in this introduction, why am I writing this letter? He is basically answering three questions that you you need to know these things you need to know who is Jesus you need to know how do you know that for sure and you need to know what difference does that make to your life that's his introduction that's his reason for writing these three questions who is Jesus how do you how can you be absolutely sure of that and what difference does that make to life you are going to see those those questions answered throughout the book and in these first four verses you can see the different style that John has for instance the first one who is Jesus well that is seen in right there in the first part of verse 1 that which was from the beginning Jesus is that which was from the beginning you see it also in the latter part of verse 1 he is the word of life you see it right there in the the start of verse 2 he is the life at the end of verse 2 the eternal life which was with the father and has appeared to you who is jesus he is all of those things he is the eternal life he was there from the beginning he is the sorry he is um, he is the word of life and he is he is the um, he is from the beginning he is the word of life and he is the eternal life then we see how do you know this how do you know who jesus is how do you know that for sure we see that at the end of verse 1 the one here well we have heard we have seen we have looked and our hands have touched verse 2 we have seen it and in the end of verse 2 we have uh, sorry the start of verse 3 we have seen and we have heard that is how we know who Jesus is and then the last question what difference does that make to our lives is that seen at the second part of verse 3 so that you also may have fellowship with us. And since our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, this will make our joy complete. That's, that's why it matters. That's the difference that it makes to all of life. So let's have a quick look at this introduction. And and, and this, of course, is John's reason for writing the letter. And the first question he's answering is, who is Jesus? Um, this is an important one. And I guess John was answering... A problem he was speaking to a problem that we even have today as well you've heard me use this illustration before but but for the Christians we have we have the Word of God and and it is a lens through which we are supposed to see the world in a, in this this way it is a little bit like a telescope at one end where you put your eye you have a very very small lens at the other end the lens that you're looking looking through ultimately it's a very large lens the lens to use a telescope properly the lens that you that you look at is small and it and it's larger at the other end as christians that small lens is like the bible we're supposed to to look at the world through the lens of the bible the the world the the pervading philosophies our particular situation and our circumstances, the way that we look at that to make sense of it is to use the Bible as our, as our lens to look at the world. But there will always be a temptation to swing that telescope around. And to use the lens of the world, the pervading philosophies of the day, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, situations that we are in, to use that as the lens in which to view the Bible. In fact, there are many who would say, hey, listen, we are an enlightened world. We understand things we didn't way back in those ancient times. This is the lens through which you should be trying to make sense of the Bible. And this uh, kind of these archaic stories and myths. That will always be the temptation. And you might say, okay, thank you for giving me the heads up, Stuart. That will never happen to me. I promise you this. This is this is prophetic me. It will happen to you because it happens to everybody. Unfortunately, I would love to promise you as, as Christians and followers of Jesus, I would love to promise you a pain-free life and that no major tragedy or suffering or difficulty or challenge will ever come your way. And in that moment, I would be be telling you a falsehood. The reality is that suffering, challenges, difficulties, they come to each of us. And I would suggest that at some point in everyone's life, a challenge so great, so difficult, so heartbreaking will come your way that you will be tempted to flip the telescope and say, I just cannot make sense of what God is doing at the moment. I cannot make sense of his word. I cannot make sense of, of why this would happen. I, I, and you will be tempted to flip the telescope and look at scripture and God through the lens of the world and your situation. There will be a temptation one day, and I've warned you that that will happen. And you need to be disciplined and you need to say to yourself, no, I will not do that in faith. I choose to look at the difficulties that come my way through the lens of Scripture. You see, what happens when we do that is it, it, we, we do gain clarity ultimately on the situation. There may be a little bit of focusing to do and there may be some adjustments and you may have to be patient, but eventually you will see that situation through the lens which God is, is calling you to. Flip the telescope and suddenly what happens? Things look distant and very small, don't they? And eventually your God will as well. So John approaches the church in this way, and and he he is addressing an issue whereby a new teaching has come into the church called docetism. The Gnostics would introduce this. And docetism was suggesting that the material world around us is evil, that, that the created order is evil. I mean, look around it. You know... Things are in a state of decay and for every good thing, something bad is happening. Hey, it would be very, very easy to be be quite despondent about, about the world in which we live. You can be the most optimistic humanist there that ever ever paraded around this world, but at the end of the day, 10 minutes listening to a news broadcast is gonna bring you back to reality. We do live in a world in which evil is present. And docetism basically said that that being the case, Jesus could have been fully God, but there is no way that he could be fully human. Because if he was fully human, he'd be a product of an evil world, and that that. You know, logically discounts the fact that he could be fully divine. It's one or the other. He could be fully divine or fully human, but because the you know, our humanity, the material world around us is 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 evil, you can't have it both ways. No, Jesus must have been some sort of phantom, some sort of spirit man. And and that was one of the teachings that was creeping creeping in through the Gnostics at that particular time, so John says, "No, the way to look at this is to stick by the teaching that you received early on. Keep the telescope focused the way that it is." I'll tell you that Jesus was both fully God and and He was fully man, and and now we see this in these verses. If you look at, if you look at um, the first first part there, verse one a, He is from the beginning. This is this is Jesus who was eternal and it correlates remember I said that it's sort of what he's saying in his first letter actually corresponds with the gospel look at the first few verses of John and, and there it is he's is saying Jesus was from the beginning and John his gospel chapter 1 verse 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God verse 2 he was with God in the beginning then John says that he is the word of life the word that brought life. He is, he is the creator. And we see that in verse three, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then he says, John, in his letter, he is the eternal life in verse two. He is life in himself. He not only creates, he is life. He is his very essence is life. And we see that also in verse um In verse 4 of John chapter 1, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He is fully God. He is eternal. He is the creator, and he is life. He is fully God. He is fully divine. And then John goes on in his letter to say, And he appeared to us. He was manifest to us. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. He was fully man. In John the gospel in chapter 1 verse 14 the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth John is answering in that very very first little introduction there in his prologue He's answering this question about who is Jesus the Gnostics say he could only be God. He can't also be fully human. And John is saying, no, he's both. He is fully God and he is fully man. He is eternal, the creator in life, but he is also incarnate. The word became, became flesh. You know, we are all called to think correctly about Jesus and who he was. Theology, in a sense, the study of God is something for all of us. We should all be good theologians, but here's the thing. Good theology is not what you think about God. Good theology is what God thinks about himself. And John actually actually says in, in chapter 5, I know we're not there yet, but you can, you can flip, spoiler alert, you can flip over to chapter 5 and look at verse 9 here. This is good theology, not what we think about God, but what God thinks about himself. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. We are called to think correctly about who Jesus Christ is and and John in this letter is calling us to do that. Be good theologians, think correctly about Jesus. Now, but how do you know these things? How do we know anything? How How do we know? And Jesus now goes into that you see the Gnostics gnosis means to know it's a special knowledge and and John often uses throughout his letter we know we know this we know that and he talks about the knowledge that we have through the revelation that can only only come from God the reason I had to go to Ian Hawley's office on that particular day was a dear friend who had discipled me for many, many years when I was quite young, just you know, through the teen years and into my you know, young adult years. He'd poured himself into me and, and he'd been a really good teacher. But now some different ideas were creeping into his thinking. And, and he was coming up with some stuff which, as I listened to him, I thought, wait on, <laughs> that contradicts what you would have taught me years ago. That contradicts what, what we used to agree about, what we used to pray about. You know that contradicts a whole lot of things that earlier we we would have thought and so forth and and i i didn't know what liberal theology was i i had no idea i was still first year at bible college and i was still learning these things but something about what what he was now introducing to my thinking didn't sound right and this had created the turmoil within me this had led me to ian's office to come and kind of have that time time with him and that in a sense is what some teachers had done to the church there in Ephesus and throughout that area as well they were gnostics and it's called that heresy is called gnosticism they were people who put an emphasis on what it means to know. To know there was an emphasis on the mind and, and, and even the imagination. It didn't necessarily have to be fact. Jesus didn't have to physically appear as a man and, and physically die and be physically resurrected and those sorts of things. The mind and the imagination were superior to, to historical fact and such realities. This was Gnosticism. Somebody has said it was well, like if you try, want to get your head around it today, if you, if you took a bit of liberal theology and poured it into a, into a mixer and then you took a little bit of you know, modern, modern thought and, and philosophy and if you took a little bit of the, the New Age practice and, and understanding of things and you blended that, you'd kind of, you'd kind of have something close to Gnostic thought. Um, it was confusing. And the teachers were often very, very persuasive. Um, they knew... And it was very very difficult to question as well because they would simply say these are these are things too difficult for you to understand you have to be enlightened you have to have this esoteric knowledge you have to be well spiritually enlightened like we are and therefore very hard to reason with and and so forth and so John has to combat this as well and so he says here well they say they know this and they know that here's what I know I have first-hand experience of who Jesus really was. And he appeals to that. He says, well, we have heard him. We have seen him. We have actually looked at him, and our hands have actually touched him. We have seen the one and only. We have seen and, and we have heard. That's John's testimony. It's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting he undercuts all of the other arguments simply by saying, "I have first hand knowledge of who Jesus is." Um, I wonder whether he may have had in mind something something like perhaps a, a moment that we read about in in Matthew chapter thirteen in Matthew chapter thirteen, just to give you the skinny um, the disciples are asking Jesus why he speaks in parables you know. We don't understand what you're saying? Other people don't understand what you're saying. Why are you talking in parables, Lord? And so Jesus takes them aside and, and there's this beautiful, intimate little moment. In chapter 13, he's just told this, this parable about, you know, a farmer sowing, sowing seed, and some of it's fallen on the path, and and the birds come and they they, they peck it and, and, and pick it up and it's and it's stolen away. And and some of it falls on rocky ground, so you know, the roots don't sink deep, and and the sun comes and scorches it. And, well, that's dead as well. Some of the seed actually catches and falls into the soil, but then thorns grow up and surround it and, and kill it off. Now, some of the seed lands in good soil. And the disciples are probably thinking, great, if we were planting a garden bed, that would be really handy knowledge. But we don't understand the parable. So Jesus takes them inside, and he has this lovely moment with them. And In chapter 13, verse... Um, Verse 16, 18, it is. Very, very small font, this. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, Um, verse 17, for truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So when John comes to the church and say, okay, the Gnostics claim this and that and so forth, and la-di-da-di-da, great here's what I've seen and heard, and I got it straight from the master himself. Jesus actually said to them, you know what? There are many very righteous people, prophets, who long to see and hear what you're seeing and hearing, and they couldn't. You have been chosen for this moment. I imagine all of the disciples in that moment realized, what a privilege. Wow. Seriously. Like Elijah and Elisha, and they could have named all the they didn't get it, and we're getting it. Wow. And then he goes on and explains the parable of the seed that listen, some of it, some of it does fall on on hard ground and, and so forth. Um and the evil one he comes and he snatches that away. Some of it falls on, on rocky ground. Trouble and persecution come and they fall away some of it fell on good ground but the thorns choked it the worries of this life and deceitfulness can the deceitfulness of wealth in particular can choke the word of god but some of it falls on good soil and those who hear and understand it produces a wonderful harvest a wonderful a wonderful crop john calls upon first hand experience we need to understand who jesus is and we in, we need to understand. And how do we know that? Here's, here's an interesting fact about the way the book is written. It's called an argument for. It's called ad hominem. Um, in other words, John never attacks the argument front on. He he doesn't even. I find this kind of fun. He doesn't even deconstruct the reason of the Gnostics. Doesn't even bother. Why? He just proclaims the truth this is not this is not refutation i refute this it's proclamation i don't have to do and i don't have to pull apart their arguments i'm not going to tell you how they've formed their reason and deconstructed for you i'm simply going to tell you what's true i saw him i heard him i even touched him i know that jesus is who he says he is i'm proclaiming to you here the truth that's interesting isn't it I guess sometimes um, we can be tempted in, in our witness and so forth to rely heavily on apologetics and, and being able to, to win an argument and so forth. But you know what? Following John's example here, maybe it's simpler than that. <laughs> maybe we simply proclaim the truth. We just say, oh, listen, these are wonderful ideas that you have and I'm sure they're very persuasive for you. I'll just tell you what Jesus said. I'll just tell you what I believe from the word of God. I will tell you what I have tested over my lifetime and found to be real. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? And that seems to be John's style throughout this this gospel. John essentially says that the eternal word, who was also the living word, became the incarnate word living amongst them, gave them the spoken word, Jesus' proclamation, so that they could write it down and it would become the written word. We also encounter Jesus in a similar way. The living word, we encounter the living word through the written word. But here is perhaps for here it's one, one difference. For John, um, he heard this directly from Jesus. He received the spoken word he wrote it down and he gave us the written word for John it was the spoken word I heard Jesus say this which became the written word for us it's the other way around we have the written word and that must inform the spoken word in other words I don't have a whole lot of license I don't get to do what John did the spoken word does not become the written word What we have today is the written word, which must become the spoken word. And when a speaker departs from the written word, it's probably time to depart from that speaker. John emphasizes this particular point of of his regarding how we know that something is true and how to stand by that. In chapter 2, verse 24, remember the first question he's asking is, who is Jesus? And he says you need to know who jesus is secondly you need to know how you know that and in chapter 2 verse 24 he says see that what you heard in the beginning remains in you abides in you stays in you how do you know it that which you heard in the beginning the foundations that we gave you the fundamental teaching on which your faith is based remain in that don't be persuaded to leave it. Don't add on to it. Don't be taken in by some new esoteric understanding. Don't go for it. Don't bite the bait. Stay with the foundational truth on which your faith was first founded. Remain in that, he says. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to know how we know that because it's now based on his his written word and We need to ask the question, or be able to answer the question rather, what difference does that make? And again, John is is pretty clear. He was looking at the difference that Gnosticism was making to the church. It was was creating an, an elite and superior leadership. We know these things and you can't question them. It was dividing the church because people were were confused and it was ushering in confusion so that things that used to be basic and fundamental and understood now were all of a sudden turned into grey and so forth. It was causing havoc amongst God's people. Uh, Years ago, I remember a friend sharing a story. He grew up on a farm and he had a great insight with this story. Um, Basically, they, they raised their own chickens and they ate their own chickens. And he remembers when it was going to be a, a meal of chicken, he remembers dad would take them out as kids and they'd follow him out there and the farm dogs, three or four of them, would all follow them out too. And, and so there would be, there would be dad and, and the chicken and the axe and the audience was, was the kids and the dogs, the farm dogs, and they'd all stand around for this moment. And so um, um, onto the chopping block would go the chicken and the axe would fall, the head would fly and, and, and then he would let the chicken go to bleed it. He'd let the chicken run around and... I said this morning, I, I've never seen this before, but I imagine it's, it's something like um, uh, you know those garden sprinklers. You know, <laughs> I imagine there's just a chukkers running around. It's a little bit like that with plasma goes just flying everywhere and, and, and blood. I imagine that's it. So everyone kind of stand back a little bit. And, and here's the thing, he says, we used to love it. Like it was so funny watching the chicken. Whoa! <laughs> but the dogs would slink off. The farm dogs sensed that something wasn't right here, and they would slink off, you know. And it probably not, because dogs are clever, but they're probably not as clever as enough to say, whoa, look what happened to the chicken, I could be next. Probably not that. It was probably, he said something wasn't right, and the dogs sensed it. The chicken without the head scared them, it spooked them. There was something was not right about a body running around without a head. And here was his insight same with the church when the church forgets who is really its head there's something not right the body can't function properly without a head now satan can never change the headship of jesus christ he can never take away his authority or his position or the fact that he is over the church satan can't touch that but what can he do he loves to use deception to creep into the church and to create confusion, to create, to create the sort of anarchy in which we've, we've lost sight of who the head of the church really is. And when we forget who the head is, the body doesn't work and operate as it, as it should. This was John's concern. And so he, he basically addresses this and he, and he says, So, What difference does it make? What difference does a correct understanding of who Jesus is and knowing that you know that you know that you know this. Why is this important and what difference does it make? Here's the difference. When you get that right, when you understand who the head is, when you know who Jesus is, and you know that you know that you know, when you get that right, then you have fellowship with us. And because we have fellowship with the Father and the Son, well, that makes our joy complete true fellowship rich fellowship the greek word there koinonia which means fellowship literally but yes is also a word sometimes used for marriage the intimacy of marriage it's a very rich word fellowship something which should be the, the experience of all of god's people when we are when we are in a healthy place and we understand the headship of jesus christ fellowship is at its richest When Jesus is in his position his correct position and understood that's why it's important that's why we must know who Jesus is the outflow of when you know who Jesus is and you know that you know that you know then our fellowship is rich as the people of God and he'll get to it the fruit will come and we will love one another and so forth but that's his order understand who Jesus is and don't let that get eroded. Know this, know this truth and know how you know it and stand by that and your fellowship, your fellowship will be rich and complete and as an apostle and you know just hear the you know hear this elderly apostle and my joy will be complete. Oh, there's the heart of a of a church father. Um a few of us on the team have been reading a book called Discipleshift by, by Jim Putman. And in it, he talks a little bit about some of the values of the church. When you try and understand the difference between a, one culture and another culture, missionologically, um, you look at the values. But here's the interesting thing. It's not like you can, you can list off the values of this culture and the values of this culture and say that, aha, look at their list of values, you know? Um, now I understand the differences because often the values will look exactly the same. It's not as easy as we think, you know, life is good and death is bad. We think life is bad and death is good. You know, it's not that easy. Determining the differences between a culture aren't necessarily different values, but the way that they're ordered the priority of those values how this value in relation to this value how are they prioritized that's how you understand differences in culture and Jim simply made this point if as a disciple of Jesus Christ I had to list what are the values your your key values your key priorities I would list it this way firstly firstly God and then your marriage and then your family, and then your earthly family. And at that point I thought, wait on, didn't you mean your earthly family and then your heavenly family, the church? And he flips it and he says, no. He says, firstly, God, then your marriage, then your church family, and then your earthly family. He says, this always raises a question and inevitably he had to explain himself. And here was his thought. Our earthly families should be shaped by the model of our church family because the headship of our church family is Jesus Christ and our our heavenly father is father of that family and he gets it right. So we should model our earthly families on our church family under the headship of Jesus Christ, fathered by our God. Not the other way around. He says, when we bring when we bring our models of earthly family, our, you know, our, 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 our background, our family of origin, when we bring our family of origin to bear upon the church, inevitably we get it wrong. We don't model church family on our, the experience of our earthly families. We model our earthly families on our experience of the church family. Isn't that fascinating? Makes sense too, doesn't it? And John is here saying, but how do you get that Right? well because that's a high call (laughs) and John here is giving us the formula he was saying firstly know who Jesus Christ is know that you know that you know so so that you can never you will never doubt that and when you have the headship of Christ in place correct family will follow and the ideal is that our church family will actually be so rich and so complete that it will become a model for our earthly families. Wow. That's a, that is something to strive for, isn't it? I reckon that is something that I would love to aspire to, to see more and more. And so you can probably see why on the pastoral team, we're pretty excited about First John. We think it's a really, a really great book for us as a church we're looking forward to delving into it that's just the introduction that's the big picture of of where we're going we're answering three questions who is jesus how do you know that and what does it mean and our desire is that now as we have this this privilege this written word in our hands john writing this down for us yes originally the that circuit of churches that he was hoping to minister to I doubt he probably ever imagined that Vine Baptist Church was going to exist and that we would be opening it, this book up in the year 2020. I think he had some great visions. I'm not sure he had that one. But here we are opening up this letter and still receiving from it. Pretty exciting, heart. Huh? So what, we're, what are we hoping for? We're hoping for this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. I'm going to finish on this thought. Over however long this takes us mark took us two years i reckon we can get i reckon we can nail first john you know at least three right (laughs) what are we hoping for we're hoping for this romans chapter 15 not going to tell you the verse yet because you'll start looking at it and you're going to spoil this but when we had our privilege of long service leave last year i'll just tell you the, just tell you the background to this verse for me um as you many of you know we towed a caravan went around australia lovely trip um, we couldn't do all of Australia, so we scooted very, very fast across the Nullarbor, got to WA, loved, loved the south of w, WA. We got to a little town called New Norcia where there is a Benedictine monastery, and there's only, well, it's a monastery, there's only one church there, it's a Catholic church. And I, um, as we read, read about the township, you know, the bakery, the coffee shop, the, um, read also about this program they had where you could meet a monk. I thought, oh, I'd like to meet a monk. I don't think I've ever met a monk, and the monk might like to meet a pastor. So let's make this happen. So I went down to, went down to the church to meet a monk, and it wasn't meet a monk time. I got the I got the day wrong. So I thought, all right, I'll go back tomorrow to the church service and I'll meet my monk then. And um, and I went in and and got there. Bron decided that she was just going to delve into the word and have her own sort of little little um, um, moment um, with God. But I went down to the down to the service. It was a little church. I would say. If you just took this section here and pushed it back a few rows, it was about that big. Absolutely jam packed. Very intergenerational, very interracial. It was, it, was, it was a delight. It was where I heard the song that we sang a little bit earlier. Thanks for leading, leading us in this band, but come come as you are, come as you are. Um, it was this beautiful little chapel with amazing acoustics and, and just one person on a guitar and, and everybody singing and it was sung during the Eucharist. And it was, it was this lovely moment of just encountering God. And anyway, afterwards, they did what we often do too. They had tea and coffee, and I thought, well, I better taste their coffee. Um, just feel beholden to do that. And as over a cup of coffee, I, I met David Barry, who is an older monk. Strikes me a little bit like the Apostle John. He was in his 80s, and he was pretty old, and, and I struck up a bit of a conversation with him. And, and we, we had a delightful chat. And eventually, somewhere in the conversation, he says, Come, let me show you something. I said, oh, okay. And he starts what I thought was going to be a tour of the monastery. And I thought, this is cool. (laughs) Free tour. Not only got to meet a monk, but this this could have been me had I not been married with four children. And a Baptist pastor. And as we walked through through the monastery, he took me down to this back hall. This is a very, very old building. It took me to this back hall, which was now falling down, which is such a pity because there were these beautiful frescoes painted by an old Spanish monk. I don't know about 20,000 years ago, and 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 now it was kind of chipped off and that sort of thing. But but David actually took me from one fresco to the next, and and he was reading each each beautiful picture or painting had you know this inscription below it in Latin, and I got the sense that he probably had a couple of languages under his belt, and he would, he would explain the Latin to me and, and so forth. We moved from one to the other to the other, and it, he got to this one, and he said, oh, and I got the sense this was his favorite, and he said, this is about hope, and he said, it reminds me of that verse, and then he just paused for the longest time, and I was thinking, is he trying to remember the verse or something, but I think he was just taking it in. He was lost in the moment, and I was enjoying watching him there. he said Romans chapter 15 verse 4 and he he knew it off by heart he said for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope the scriptures have been written down in the past to give us hope how do they do that other translations are very very similar but but you could read it this way this is probably my favorite the scriptures give us encouragement and consolation which is a word for peace or comfort the scriptures give us encouragement and consolation so that we will never lose hope isn't that beautiful I think that's what the apostle john was doing for the church the last apostle he wrote these letters down to explain his gospel and the idea was this that he would give in he would give an enduring teaching now everything that was written in the past in order to teach us was written to teach us so that through the encouragement and the consolation that scripture brings we will never lose hope You could correctly say, and particularly younger generation, you live in a unique time, and every single generation before you could correctly say the same thing, honestly. But you do not need to lose hope. The same confidence that other generations have had in the word of God to bring you courage and to bring you comfort, it's going to do the same thing for you. You can trust him, have hope. First John is going to unpack some remarkable truths for you. My prayer for us as a church is we all just love the journey. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much that you, Lord Jesus, the living word, reveal yourself to us through the written word in, it all, in order to give us encouragement and courage and to bring us comfort and consolation that we would experience an enduring hope a hope which will never fade an inexhaustible hope a wonderful hope a hope that is well anchored in you over these next few weeks as we unpack first John come meet with us we pray may we have those moments where it feels like we are meeting with you, hearing directly from you. Ancient words of wisdom, which give us courage once more and help us to understand our times and how to respond. God, we love you and we love gathering together and hearing from you. I pray these times will be rich and, and that we will experience something of the fellowship that you mean for us to have. Unite us together as family, Father. Bind us together with a unity that is inexplicable. You can't explain it except to say, well, that must be born of the Spirit of God. May this be true. May it be so in our midst. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.